From the studios of Teeing It Up in the swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling from Monday, June 12th, the year 2017 U.S. Open Monday. It's 91 degrees under hazy, sunny skies in the swamps of Jersey. First heat wave of 2017, and we welcome you inside our studios, and we welcome in from the Golf News Net and Yahoo Devil Ball Golf Blog, Mr. Ryan Boundy to preview the United States Open Championship. Hello, sir. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? I'm good. A couple things have happened since we last spoke, the biggest of which is obviously Tiger. Um, I did a monologue on this show either last week or the week before. I've been running episodes that don't run on the day that I taped them, so I sometimes forget when things are happening. Um where I basically said um, what's happening here is, is, in, is insanely sad, insanely um, troubling, and you just hope that if he needs help, and it's not our job to speculate about larger problems, but if he needs help, uh, that he gets the help, that his stubbornness and his... Uh, rigidity to a private life doesn't preclude him from seeking the help that he needs. Um, what's your thoughts now, you know, two weeks or so detached from what happened? What's your thoughts? I think that's about right. I mean, I, I, I still feel like the ultimate feeling here is I'm sad for Tiger Woods. Uh, I think that the, the revelation or further news uh, from the secondary reports from the arresting officer that, and the, the testing officers at the, at the county jail that Woods told them or that he had been taking Xanax. Uh, I think that puts things in a little bit of a different light. I think that opens up some discussion possibilities here, not only about using prescription medication, uh, because the FDA pretty blatantly warned that using opioids and uh, an anti-anxiety medication like Xanax could lead to some catastrophic circumstances. Yep. Catastrophic side effects. Coma is among them. Uh, you know, all kinds of other problems. Uh, but kind of coma leaves the list, especially when you think about the context of, of how Woods was found and how he was found asleep. So, my question then is not because I want a psychological profile of Tiger Woods, but from a health standpoint, how long has Woods been taking Xanax? Uh, is it a fairly recent development? And if it is, maybe that explains why he didn't realize how these drugs would react to one another, uh, and that's how he landed himself in this situation. And uh, frankly, ultimately, he doesn't have to explain that at all. Uh, that's not his job. So. And it's not, and it is right to keep it private. But I think that's kind of where my interest in this story leads me to: is how long has he been working with this kind of group of medications, and why did that lead to this? And, and as you mentioned, is it a part of a broader uh, addiction problem, or is it just he started using these things three weeks ago, and all of a sudden he? made a mistake. Uh, we don't know, and we probably won't ever, but I think that's where my curiosity leads me. Um, you, and that, that monologue of yours, that answer juxtaposes, and, and I, I can't rationalize these two thoughts with what Tim Rosefort's friend reported. 
the guy who Tiger's been walking around medalist with, talking about how pain-free and how happy he was. Um, yeah. And and I I trust Rosie on that. I, I don't think Rosie's being played. He's a guy who lives there. He's a member at all those places. He's got solid connections. I don't doubt Rosie's report. I think that you could be looking at a guy living, you know, two lives, which sadly so many of us have hidden demons that we fight every day. And um, it's just sad that somebody who wrote on his website and talked to this friend about how pain-free and and upbeat he was may have been going through all this stuff. It's just incredibly sad. I think that that the reality is pretty much everyone lives a double life in some fashion, Uh, whether it's... They don't have to be stark contrasts of one another, but you do live multiple lives. You're, you're. In my case, I'm a dad. I own a business. I play golf. All those things are different lives. I'm not exactly the same person in all of those things. Yeah. And it, for Tiger, it's got to be a stark contrast between being a 79-time PGA Tour winner with 14 major championships who's expected to be a certain guy and act a certain way and say certain things because he's been in the public spotlight for 35 years or longer than that or be a dad to two kids who are kind of blooming into their own in middle school getting closer to high school age and then to be this other guy who is recognizing that one of the lives that he leads is getting closer to the end. And how do you kind of rejuvenate yourself? Do you become a businessman? Do you wallow in your sorrows for a while? What do you do? And, uh, and I, you know, like I said, having multiple lives doesn't mean there are sinister reasons, but trying to manage them all together can be difficult sometimes. Um, all right, let's shift to the United States Open Championship at Aaron Hills. I, from what I've read, big golf course, wide fairways, got to keep it in the fairway, though, high rough. Uh, got to position yourself right. Wind's going to be a huge factor. Got to get yourself in the right part of the greens. Recovery shots around the greens could be hard because of the undulations, blah, blah, blah. All that, John Rahm is my pick. I'm going to say it and on the front part of the podcast. Don't be concerned. You're not on my show for only six minutes. Um, <laughs> John Rahm is my pick. I think this just fits him. Am I crazy? Am I wrong? Am I right? No. I mean, I, I think... He has all the tools to be excellent at anywhere, any golf course. I, mean, I, I think more than anything, his performance at Colonial cemented that thought for me. That yeah, he, he can play that style of golf. That really, that ballpark should not fit his eye, and he played really, really well there and hit some shots that I did not believe he had in the bag. And that convinced me that it doesn't matter where he plays. It matters if he feels confident, and it matters if he feels. Like he's on top of the world, like he has been. And at Memorial, he wasn't kind of let it get to him a little bit from the sounds of things. And hopefully he is able to put that aside and play the kind of golf that he has more or less played every round since he became a professional. And even before he became a professional, last year at Oakmont, he was a low am and finished in the top 25. So I, I think that he can play this championship extremely well. I, I, he's one of my top 10 guys that I would look toward as favorites to win this championship, if not a top-five guy. Um, talking to Ryan Ballinger here about the U.S. Open. From what you've seen of Aaron Hills, if you remember it from the U.S. Amateur, from what you've read about it, from what you've seen so far on TV this week, 
what stands out? Um, it seems like they're not going to have the problems with Chambers Bay. The golf course is apparently in amazing shape. Nobody's been on this thing all year. It's been closed since last fall. Um, it seems like they've got a golf course that's, that, that's in great shape. So if we take that out and take a step back here, um, you know, what stood out to you so far about the golf course itself? I played there about just shy of two years ago when the PGA Championship was at Whistling Street. Mm. They're, they're about net 45, 50 minutes apart, depending on what back road you wind up taking. And it, it, yeah, first thing you think of is, wow, this is a big place because it's a fairly lengthy drive down the driveway to, just to get to the <laughs> ag drop area, basically. And then, you, I mean, you're on an 800-acre farm, basically, and 300 acres, more or less, or on which the golf course sits, the whole entire golf facility sits. So it is pretty massive. Uh, the fairways are extremely generous in most places. I mean, I mean, not universally, but they're pretty generous. You have no reason not to hit the fairway, uh, it, especially with the, the way that the USGA has kind of set it up. It, it, it's firm enough that it probably will save you more than it will hurt you if you put it in the right spot. You're not going to bound out of the fairways into foot-high, hugely dense, fescue rub. It's fescue in the fairway, you know, from basically from tee to green, but the tees and greens are bent grass, which is really what everyone thought should have been done at Chambers Bay, and frankly, had they done that, they would have been able to salvage the golf course. It would have been a better open. But that's kind of where the comparisons between the two end. There's not a lot of earth moves to make Aaron Hills. They did it on four holes, and you probably couldn't even tell. I couldn't uh, which earth they moved to make the golf course as it looks. It's pretty pretty much all natural. Chambers Bay is the total opposite. It was totally constructed, man-made from a mine. Basically, Robert Trent Jones Jr. had a blank canvas and could move whatever earth he wanted to make it. Uh, Aaron Hills has some generously sized greens in terms of square footage, but that's deceptive. Just like the length of the scorecard is deceptive, it doesn't play... It, and it will never play 77-41, as the U.S. Open scorecard says. Just because of wind and roll, it'll play 7,300 or so. You're, you can expect 30, 40 yards of roll on most every hole. It's not a par 3. So for 14 holes, you can expect a good amount of that. The greens, like I said, are large, but the playable areas, the areas you would be willing to hit to, are not large. Uh, you can hit a lot. You can hit... 18 greens of regulation and not have a good look at anything. You can hit the green and leave yourself a tricky putt every time, but if you hit it to the right spot for the whole location, which, again, is a small area relative to these large greens, you have pretty easy putts. They're not hard if you hit them in the right spot. If you get them close enough, the putts aren't hard. So this place is eminently scorable, having obviously four par fives, the par 72 that's different for you as open. Usually it's 70. They're all over 600 yards. They're reachable for a good chunk of the field. Not everybody, but reachable for a good chunk of the field. And I think that the winning score winds up being in that 6 to 8 under range just because you're basically affording guys 8 extra strokes against par over the course of 4 rounds. So at a minimum, 6 to 8 under par would put you at even par or 2 over par if we held this on a par 70 golf course. So I think that's what people should expect to see. Um, you talked about the wind um, and how big of an impact the, the wind can have um, on this golf course 
we'll get to the weather forecast in a second. But does the fact that you're going to have at times 30 or 40 yards of roll bring in guys who are not long ball hitters? I've been trying in my head to rationalize a pick for, for, for Steve Stricker ever since he qualified last week. I still can't do it, but it seems like this is a golf course that um, if there was ever a golf course, I'm sorry, if there was ever a week that Steve Stricker could have a run and add, add another major, I think a, a, a Wisconsin homecoming could be it. But is there enough in the weather, in the wind and the way the ground is to bring in a guy like Stricker or Zach Johnson or someone like that? I think Stricker still has a pretty good pop in the bat. I, I, I don't think that's a problem for him. I, I think actually Zach Johnson loves pop in the bat. He just mm. the PXG clubs that he hits on the mat. That's kind of his issue. But Stricker's played such great golf, and basically the catalyst was getting denied the special exemption yeah. from the USGA. He said, okay, well, I'll earn my way in. I've got PGA Tour status. I'll try and figure it out that way or try and get in the top 50 in the world. Top 50 in the world. And he almost did that, and then instead just won his qualifier, which I think is remarkable for a nearly 51-year-old man. And having to go 36 holes, which so many people right. overlook. But, A, that's not something pros normally do. Uh, when guys do it at home, they're in carts, um, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's nuts. It's, it is, yeah. what he did going 36, walking on a Monday to qualify for this thing is just remarkable. Yeah, fantastic. And I just got done playing a 36-hole tournament over the weekend, 18-18, uh, over two days, and I was gassed at two-thirds of the way through the second round. Like, how do these guys do this every week? Like, this is ridiculous. Uh, is it just, it's remarkable the shape that you have to be in, the, the mental drain that it takes on you to be able to play tournament golf when every shot counts and you got to care about every one of them. So, all that to say, Stricker's been playing great golf on, on the PGA Tour. He acclimated from playing more on PGA Tour champions, which is shorter, a little bit different format, 54-hole shootout style as opposed to kind of playing your way into a tournament, 72 holes on the PGA Tour, he adjusted like there was no problem. So I think the length really isn't an issue for him, and even on the par fives and longer par fours, especially the longer par fours, they mostly play downhill off the tee shot, so you're not really in a, a situation where you're not going to be able to get some kind of roll, regardless of what happens weather-wise, so they won't play that long. And he, he's one of the best pledge players in the world uh, when he wants to be, so... Uh, even if he can't reach all the par fives in two, that's okay. He can still get on him in three and, and put it close enough to, to make putts. So I, I I don't see a reason why he can't play well. I don't think that the length of the scorecard would be what stops him. Hmm. Alright, let's get to the weather and, and this is the, the non Phil Mickelson weather question. Um this forecast is for shower chances. The percentages are fairly high. It's almost every day. It's summer after all. Uh, does this change the complexion of the golf course in the sense that it could make it too wet and eliminate a crop of players? Maybe. Wednesday's the best chance for rain is 80%. So obviously that gets set up Thursday a little bit. Thursday is a 60% chance of AM thunderstorms. So that, in terms of the best possible forecast for Phil Mickelson, short of a 100% chance of a hurricane, this is pretty good. Uh, there is an outside chance that you can make this work. But that said, after that, the, the rain chances kind of go down a little bit, a little bit high on Friday, just around 50%. That's more in the afternoon than the morning, so maybe they 
are playing a little bit of catch-up going into the weekend, and then it, it decreases even further into Saturday, like 30% for scattered and then uh, scattered storms, and then on Sunday, basically a nonchalant chance of rain. Um, so I don't, I don't think that we're going to have an issue finishing with time. Like you said, depends on how much it, it actually rains. I mean, Midwest weather is notoriously strong in bursts in small areas. I mean, it could be really strong over the 800 acres we're talking about and all of a sudden cause some problems. We, we just don't know. But I, I would, my intuition tells me that even if it does rain, this place has been in such good shape and under such a watchful eye for the USGA, and it's probably firm enough at this point that uh, the, the phrase I liked from Pat Perez, the players, is even if it rains, it's like watering concrete. Like, it's not going to make all that much of a difference. So it might soften up the greens a little bit, but overall I don't think it'll change the complexion of how these guys play the golf course. I'm talking to Ryan Ballinger here about um, the United States Open Championship at Aaron Hills. Ryan, A, do you think Phil Mickelson makes it? And B, if he makes it, is he worth a pick? Here he is, a guy who yesterday in Memphis got into a tie for the lead and said basically... I saw my name, got freaked out, and didn't know how to handle it, which is a bizarre statement from the, the second best player of the last, you know, 25 years in golf. Is he worth the pick if he makes it Darren Hills? Yeah, that one weirded me out. Uh, I, I don't think he is. I, I think that there are way better players, way better options. I, we did a top 20 today for golf news, and I felt like I was leaving 10 guys out, and none of them were named Phil Mickelson. So I, I would say... At a minimum, he's the 25th best player available in this field right now. And that's because Phil Mickelson struggles to finish rounds. He just struggles in general to finish off rounds, much less when he gets into the, the lead of a championship on Sunday. And he just seems to get, maybe it's being tired, maybe it's lack of concentration, maybe it's both, I don't know. But he doesn't finish rounds, and he doesn't finish tournaments, and that's why he hasn't won since 2013. I don't think he winds up playing. I just don't think that the guys have not been kind to him in playing the U.S. Open over the years. I don't think there's any reason for them to be now. I think the next time we see him play the U.S. Open is Shinnecock next year and see if he can try to exact a little revenge from 2004. Talking with Ryan Ballinger here about the U.S. Open. That was just a bizarre comment from Phil because, um, look, I haven't played competitive golf in... It was, it was 10 years last summer when I lost to my uncle because I basically got too nervous over a second shot on the 18th hole with a wedge in my hand, left it out left. Um, but I'm supposed to mess up. I'm not a competitive golfer. I'm not somebody doing tournaments. That was just a bizarre comment from Phil who hypothetically should know better and should prep better. I, I'm not sure what to make out of that. The year in golf has been weird. Uh, we talked about this leading up to the players, and now here we are again. Um, the players was won by a guy who is hurt, basically. I'm not sure we're going to see anything quality out of Siwoo Kim. The guys who have won since are a run of quality, nice players, um, but don't really move the needle, per se. Uh, you look at guys like Horschel and Kisner and Duffner... Nice pedigree guys. I think a lot of us have looked at Kevin Kisner as someone to make a step up. A lot of people have been wondering where Billy Horschel has been. Now we know that answer. Duffner gets really streaky. 
Um, and obviously Daniel Berger yesterday is another class of 2011 kid doing class of 2011 things. Um, but I don't think we are seeing an ascendance of anybody to that next step echelon. And it leaves us with DJ, Spieth, Day, Rory, Rom, um, and that basic crop you know, maybe Sergio, that basic crop that we've been talking about since before the Masters is guys most likely to win a big-time event. Um, has anything that's happened lately changed your opinion on that? No, none of the top-tier players. I think you kind of nailed it on the head. That it made the weird month in golf, too, because really you have one marquee event where yeah. everyone plays together. That's the players. And then the rest of the month is kind of not a throwaway. They're a good tournament. Memorial's a great tournament, but not everyone plays it. Does not ever quite everyone likes Muirfield Village for some reason or another, or they're not all healthy. You got Rory McIlroy there, so I I think it's kind of odd to try to take. It, it's just difficult to take something from May and say, all right, this is the momentum going into the U.S. Open. It, it's hard to find it. And, and even if you wanted to try to extract something for the players, like you said, Siwoo Kim's hurt, missed a zillion cuts. There were some good finishers there, but even guys like Sergio Garcia basically tried to play on purpose one round in one shot, and he tried to play on Sunday, didn't play very well. So I, I think that we still got our kind of handful of guys that you still got to consider better than everybody else. Maybe not quite head and shoulders. I mean, Dustin Johnson, I think, is still in that company, but everyone else has kind of come down a little bit. And then you have a pretty solid B tier of guys that starts to change a little bit. I mean, Horschel kind of gets himself into that picture a little bit. Jason Ducker has been great. Kittner's up there. Even Sean O'Hare's played great golf lately. Brooks Kepka seems to fit. Charles Schwartz wasn't on my radar three weeks ago for this, and now I think he's got a great opportunity. Justin Thomas kind of had fallen by the wayside, then got himself back into it at Memorial. And then you start to think about guys you haven't talked about in a while, and at the top of that list is Hideki Matsuyama. He's been fine. There's been nothing wrong with what he's done. He just hasn't been on that kind of tour pace that he was earlier in the year. So I think there really is a solid kind of B crop of players, but the assumption that Dustin Johnson's going to win this thing is almost kind of the default assumption. Yeah. Because who else is going to beat him? And up until the memorial blow up, I would have popped my chest out and said, John Rahm's going to do it, but then that happened. So there doesn't seem to be A, momentum, or B, a clear reason to pick anyone other than the guys who are in that top team. Alex Noren, I'm telling you, he's going to do this and he's going to shock people and it's going to be... Um, hmm, trying to think of what the right comparison is. Alex Noren is Danny Willett. It, it, uh, Steve Hennessy on a um, uh, podcast airing tomorrow said that he was Danny Willett before Danny Willett. I'm not sure that's the perfect uh, thing because Danny Willett hadn't really won anything and kind of came out of nowhere. But an international guy, nobody really recognizes, and then stays. And I think once Alex Noren gets that win, maybe it's Justin Rose before Justin Rose, you know, the the uh, when Justin Rose came back on the scene after 99, so I'm talking like 08, 9, 10, 11, that Justin Rose, um, who eventually broke through in 2013 and is now a, a, a gold medalist, world-class player, very famous, you know, super well-liked, etc. I'm telling you, Alex Noren's going to win one of these things, and he's going to stay and not fall by the wayside. I, I, I think Steve Hennessy's comparison to this place, I would always 
say he's more like Charles Schwartzel. Charles Schwartzel murdered people in South Africa and on the European tour yeah. for two years. That's a great comparison. And, and almost exclusively won in South Africa, but figured out what places other than there to win. Came over, won the Masters, no one had any clue who he was. And then he really hasn't fallen on the top 50 since, and usually he's in the top 30. And you kind of see his name on the leaderboard, you're like, what has that guy done? And then he perennially goes over into Europe or South Africa, wins one or two tournaments that no one remembers, and then he comes back over here and plays well. And he, he doesn't seem, but nor nor Schwartz will seem particularly hung up on golf. It's not like golf is life for either of them. Uh, they're tremendously talented. They've got a lot of wins on their resume that everyone kind of goes, ah, but they're not in the United States. And then they have great finishes, and you go, yeah, but they haven't won yet. And then when they do, you go, So I, I do think Norrin certainly has a, a great opportunity. If you got him earlier in May when he was still like 100 to 1 or 125 to 1, you had a great wager. Now that he's like 50 or 60 to 1, depending on where you go, not quite the same value of the bet, but nonetheless, the point stands. The guy hits the ball long enough. Not super long, but he has an incredible short game, and that's going to, I think, come extremely in handy uh, to try and save him in, in certain points and rounds of the U.S. Open. All right, Ryan Ballinger, eliminate somebody for me. Danny Willett. Uh, he's never going to win anything again. Uh, yeah. Siwoo Kim for me. Siwoo Kim, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would take him out pretty quickly. Uh, Jim Furyk, you could take away. Shane Lowry, you could take. I mean, yeah, we could just go down the line. That's yeah. the nice thing about the U.S. Open, and frankly, the PGA Championship. You can knock out seventy-five guys before we start. And you know, in that sense, people complain about the Masters and go, "Well, there's so many past champions, and none of them really play all that great except Freddie." And you know, <laughs> Others from different eras, but you know most of them don't play great. Well, have you seen the U.S. Open field? Because seventy-two of those guys qualified, and unless they went through Columbus or Memphis, there's a good chance they don't make the cut. So that knocks out fifty players right away. You get another twenty that aren't playing well. So really, you're playing a tournament against seventy-five guys. Same thing for the PGA Championship uh, with the club professionals. So actually, it's a little bit less because they get the top one hundred in the world usually. So of all the majors. I, not that the U.S. Open is the easiest to win, but you have the fewest guys to beat. Your sleeper and your winner. Well, I keep telling people about Jason Day winning with everything that 
his mother is going through, and, and I'm sure the toll that that's taken on him and his family in the last six, seven months, that would be a pretty amazing story. That it would. My sleeper is Norm. My winner is Rom. Um, I also said Norm was my sleeper at Augusta, so I'm kind of repeating myself. Um, I, I, you know, the same way I kept repeating Honor Bon Lahiri for a while. And I, and, I, and I think Steve Stricker would be the cool story. Steve Stricker is so well-liked um, and so well-respected, and um, it, it, it would be pretty cool if that um, could happen the way that it does down the line. Uh, final thing unrelated to any of, of this stuff with the U.S. Open, um, which is an interesting question in terms of... of where we are in golf. Do you think the PGA to May happens? I do. Yeah. I think I was at the senior PGA championship at Trump National talked to some folks from the PGA of America and they weren't saying one way or the other what they were doing. But you can tell they're really deep in thought on this and that they're wondering they're kind of questioning well maybe we kind of missed the boat all this time being in August because kind of college football is about to start off and baseball is hitting its peak and they have a good audience, but the way that they're covered is as though they are the last major because they are. And so they're basically giving up a once in a generation, not even generation, once in a century opportunity for someone to win all four majors and it culminate in their championship versus playing in Bay and yeah, you change a different, you pick a different set of venues, you, you lose some, you gain some, as they said. But you get the opportunity to get it just as golf season starts around a lot of the United States. And the things that they could do as the PGA of America with their professionals around the start of golf season, and basically to bring the PGA Championship as the official start of our golf season, right. the Masters is the official start of pro golf season, it's the official start of our golf season. I, I think that they could do some really cool things with that. So I think they will do it. Uh, I think they have a good enough relationship with the PGA Tour that the tour will try to help them in some regard, either cut them a nice big fat check or something, <laughs> but uh, or help them negotiate their new uh, TV agreement after 19. One way or the other, I think there's a quick pro quo there. I think they will do it. Uh, last part of this, do you think the Open Championship being last is a good thing for golf because it's a morning major, it's the least watched major. If somebody does go for a Grand Slam, look, it could happen on a really historic golf course, which is cool, but it's also in a weird time slot. Um, I have mixed feelings about this, but also I'm a Tiger era fan. Glory's Last Shot, the music, Valhalla, Tiger, Bob May. There's something, there's a mystique about it that I have that a lot of people don't have. Do you think the Open Championship being last would be okay? I think that the Open, both Open, really of the four majors, all three that aren't the PGA Championship have a pretty clear identity. Yeah. Their position on the calendar. Yeah. And the, the PGA Championship just doesn't. And so that's kind of why it can move. And why there's no talk of the other three moving because the PGA is the one that lacks the clear identity. I think the Open Championship in July, uh, you could move it any time of year, and about the same number of people would watch. 
it, it wouldn't matter because, like you said, the, the time zone stinks for American audiences. There is a cult following of people that love to get up at 2 a.m. and watch the Open Championship, but there are also people who just fall asleep watching it on Saturday and Sunday morning now on NBC. So I don't think that that really changes things. And, and like you said, if, if we ever got to that point, again, where someone could win all four major championships, it could happen in one of the more historic places in golf history around the world. I think that's a cool opportunity. I don't think the RNA is like, hey, we don't want to go last. I think they, they would be perfectly fine with it. Ryan Balangi, Yahoo Devil Ball Golf Blog, Golf News Net. Enjoy the United States Open Championship. Thanks, Jeremy. And thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you tomorrow for another uh, golf-related podcast. Have a great night, everybody.